welcome to All Aboard TII's Accessibility Podcast. This is a podcast about accessibility and sustainable public transport, brought to you by Transport Infrastructure Ireland. I'm Claire Scott, and I'm joined by our All Aboard podcast host, Sarah O'Donnell. Throughout the series, we'll be hearing first-hand accounts from people who use and design public transport systems, and specifically the role accessibility plays in these experiences. And who is this podcast for? In the first instance, we hope to connect with people with disabilities who use our services. But also, it's for anyone who is drawn to human interest stories and has a curiosity to learn more. And of course, we hope to attract listeners who are designers and decision makers for transport systems, who through the podcast might get a better understanding of some of the problems and potential solutions that are out there. So without further ado, let's give this a go and get all aboard TII's Accessibility Podcast. So Sarah, what's the focus for this episode? Hi Claire. So to begin this episode, we're going to look at the topic of caring for a loved one with a disability. We start with Kathleen, one of the producers on this show, who has done some research on this as part of her master's degree in sustainable transport at TU Dublin. We then talk in depth to Erica O'Driscoll. In 2017, Erica sadly lost her brother Stephen, who was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy at a young age. Erica talks to us about her experience as a family member of a loved one with a serious disability and looks back on Stephen's own experiences of public transport and living independently. Hope you enjoy it. Kathleen Jacobi, Sustainability Portfolio Coordinator with TII, is joining us on the programme today. Kathleen, welcome to All Aboard. Thanks for having me. So Kathleen, you recently completed a master's degree in sustainable transport and mobility. And for your dissertation, you explored challenges faced by family carers. And you also did some research on family carers accompanying physically or mobility impaired loved ones on journeys involving public transport in Dublin. Tell us about this subject. I would like to start with what an informal or family carer is. So unpaid assistance to others is generally referred to as informal care or family care. In Ireland, there is a preference for using the term family carers when referring to informal carers or caregivers. We're talking about parents looking after young children and friends or family members taking care of people who need their assistance with everyday tasks, which includes getting around. The Central Statistics Office Census considers carers to be persons aged 15 years and over who provide regular unpaid personal help for a friend or family member with a long-term illness, health problem or disability, including problems due to old age. Okay, so why do you think that the mobility needs of family carers travelling with their loved ones, who in many cases are physically or mobility impaired, is such an important topic? Well, contrary to population projections across the EU, the Irish population is expected to increase in the next decades and at the same time the population structure is forecast to change quite significantly. The CSO forecast that by 2051, which isn't too far ahead, there will be less than one and a half people of working age for every person outside this age group. Informal care is mostly provided by people of working age, so it is obvious to me that family carers will be under increased pressure in the next decades. And I think we need to understand the mobility needs of caregivers and their loved ones 
and make sure that public transport is a viable and attractive option for them. And in terms of public transport as it is now, is it up to the task and did your research reveal anything here? Well, data is very limited. Um, research carried out in 2019 as part of TRI's Travelling in a Woman's Shoes study found that in Dublin, 7% of the women, but also 6% of the men surveyed stated that the main reason for not using public transport is that they can't travel with children or the person they need to take care of. My own research was too small in scale to generate conclusive results, but based on my work, I do believe that both academia and the transport sector must recognize caregivers traveling with dependents as a cohort with specific uh, issues and needs. And can you give us some examples of those particular issues and needs? Well, the issues primarily impact the mobility-impaired person, but you have to keep in mind that carers often support their loved ones physically in some way while they're moving about. One of the issues brought up by my interviewees are long distances to overcome. So, for example, when getting off the Malahide Dart in Connolly to catch a Lewis into town, it is a bit of a walk. Mm -hmm. This isn't a problem for somebody without mobility issues, but for an elderly person relying on their rollator or another mobility aid, it can take quite some time to get to that Lewis. Another issue are bumpy walking surfaces, and this was brought up by somebody traveling with their elderly mobility-impaired mother, but also by a young mother traveling with her baby in a buggy and a wheelie suitcase. Safety and antisocial behavior are issues too, and carers plan journeys with their loved ones around accessibility to and from public transport stops and also the places where they change in between services. That's interesting, Kathleen. And of course, you surveyed people on the ground at those particular locations. Now, you mentioned earlier that family carers are unpaid. So what's the impact of this and what other burdens are faced by carers? Well, caregiving responsibilities have a profound impact on the caregiver's life. Not only does caring take a lot of their time, but it also affects their physical and mental health. Many caregivers either cannot work in paid employment at all, or they only work part-time, which not only impacts on their current financial situation, but also on their old age pension entitlements. Additionally, they may have to spend money to provide for particular needs uh, of the person they take care of. Mm -hmm. All of this can result in poverty, isolation and poor health of the caregiver. So when caregivers are forced to own and use cars because public transport is unsuitable for their needs, not only does this add to the caregiver's burdens, but it also impacts on our ability to reduce the use of private cars in favour of more sustainable modes of transport. For sure. And what do you think needs to happen now in terms of public transport and carers? When I worked on my dissertation in summer of 2021, I found there was virtually no research on caregivers and public transport. It is a complex topic and research is needed specifically into mobility needs of family carers accompanying their loved ones. And we also need to look into how the public transport sector can engage with caregivers to make sure their voices are heard because they might not engage with public consultation processes in sufficient numbers due to the burdens of their caring responsibilities. Absolutely. 
And finally, Kathleen, where can people, and in particular carers themselves, find out more information about this subject? So for any of our listeners who may want more information, the HSE and many important voluntary organizations, including Family Carers Ireland, Care Alliance Ireland, uh, provide information, advice and support for carers in Ireland. The study I refer to, Travelling in a Woman's Shoes, can be found on the Transport Infrastructure Ireland website. Thanks very much, Kathleen. Many thanks to Kathleen for sharing her research and valuable insights. Next, we will hear first-hand carer experience from Erica, who talks to us about her brother Stephen and how her family supported him to live a full and independent life. Hello Erica and welcome to All Aboard. So, how are you? Good. Erica, so you work in human resources in TII and you also set, sit on TII's Internal Accessibility Committee. So you're very familiar with disability from a legal and a corporate standpoint. But you're here today to talk about something far more personal. You're going to talk to us about your brother, Stephen, who lived with muscular dystrophy and who sadly passed away in 2017. So maybe tell us first of all about Stephen. What was he like as a person and how did his diagnosis come about? Um, Well, Stephen, there was just myself and Stephen. Uh, He was my younger brother by two and a half years. So what can I say about Stephen? So he he was, look... He was a happy-go-lucky child, um, your typical boy, out playing all the time, football, running around. And I suppose when he was around, you know, young, four or five, my parents noticed just a few different things, you know, him getting off the floor. Uh, he'd run on his tippy toes, li- little things like that. So they realised maybe something's wrong and they, they brought him um, about it. And he was diagnosed when he was seven uh, with muscular dystrophy. So basically what that meant was, you know, it's, they were told it's uh, like a wearing down of the muscle tissue and, 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 and that. And it was a, a, a gradual thing. And uh, eventually he would, you know, have physical disability and end up in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, so at that stage, you know, they give you time frames and they're like, oh, he'll be in the chair from his teens and, you know, and, and even life expectancy was very low mm. at that stage. You know, I think they were saying, you know, 20s because he was diagnosed initially with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and Duchenne would be one of the most severe yeah. forms of muscular dystrophy. Um, and actually, what, come to think of it, at a post-mortem when he passed away there back in 2017, um, they actually mentioned Becker uh, muscular dystrophy Um so, and we always wonder, because Stephen did very well compared to other people that were diagnosed with Duchenne, you know, his life expectancy and um, even his physical disability. So it, it, when we saw Becker, muscular dystrophy mentioned in the autopsy, it, it made sense. I think he was on the cusp yeah. between Becker and Duchenne. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, you know, those little things. Uh, so, sorry, going back to the start. So you're, you know, you were given all these statistics, and you know how he was gradually going to end up in the chairs, and so you, you kind of think as a family, you know, you're planning ahead. So obviously, like you know, the extension happened in the house, you know, the bedrooms brought downstairs, and mm-hmm. as he got older, he did eventually go into a manual chair. Um, he'd get tired, yeah, you know, on long walks and that, um, and. Uh, so you'd have to bring the chair with you. And he'd be in and out and in and out. He hated being in the chair. Hated yeah. it. Um, and then eventually, you know, when he was, I think, around 15, 16, he, he, he went into a full-time 
you know. Yeah. And he's in the electric wheelchair at this stage. Sure. Yeah. And, and so, like you say, it's a progressive disease. It's a progressive, so yeah. probably very hard for him, even as a small child, to come to terms with having gone from running around the garden. Exactly, And yeah. having pals. And was he able to continue in mainstream school for a while, or...? He wasn't, no, because along with uh, muscular dystrophy, there's other, there's other things that come along with it. Every, every child is different. Um, their diagnosis is different. So with Stephen's diagnosis, he, his came a learning difficulty as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually he, he was in a school um, for that learning difficulty, but it wasn't accessible. Yeah. Um, it, it was strange. He, he went to this school for his learning disability, but eventually he had to move out of it because they couldn't um, facilitate the, the wheelchair. Right. So eventually he went into the central remedial clinic at uh, the school there. So obviously they're fully ex- accessible. Yeah. 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 And how about pals at home and in the neighborhood and all of that? Yeah. He, like, he had all his pals at home, but y- you know yourself. Uh, he couldn't keep up with them eventually and you know friends do grow apart and I yeah. suppose when he when he was diagnosed obviously you know you, you meet all these other children with the same condition and he would go on breaks away with these guys and he formed a really close bond with with, with a couple of the guys in, yeah. in muscular dystrophy Ireland Um, great association they do great things with the kids so he kind of not lost touch with his friends at home, but they just were going down different, different paths. paths yeah. And, you know, with a disability, a physical disability, you know, the guys at home try to do their best, but, you know, they're going off and doing their sports and all that. And yeah. So Stephen did, but he, he had a great core group in it with the MDI and um, like his friend Stephen Fitzpatrick and Ed, like the three of them. They were uh, like they were just inseparable. The three of them, yeah. yeah. So and they they all had muscular dystrophy too. Yeah, fantastic. And from your parents' point of view, and from your point of view, in terms of the daily routine, you said that the house was adapted. You built the extension, but you know there was obviously a lot of driving and trying to get from A to B. How exactly. Was, how was that when he was well, small? Well, you couldn't like you know we grew up in the eighties and the nineties. You know, mm. public transport you know, been accessible was non-existent. Yeah. Um, so you did rely on the private car, yeah. uh, the family car. So we, we always had a, an adapted vehicle for Stephen. Um, you know, the ramps going up at one stage. I think at one stage we, we actually had a car that had the lift as well. Um, so very reliant on that. Yeah. Because you couldn't rely on buses, you couldn't rely on trains. Um the Lewis wasn't there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, you did go on family holidays and summer holidays and all that, but presumably it took a lot of planning on yes. your, the part of your parents. But um, tell us about your memories of some of those family holidays. So we'd holiday a lot in Ireland. We'd never been abroad. Um, so our first big holiday abroad was actually Florida, believe it or not. Um, and at that stage, Stephen was, I think he was seven or eight Um and he was in the, we had to bring the manual wheelchair with us because obviously there's a lot of walking involved and we just, he wouldn't have been able for it. Um, so obviously the plane wasn't too much of an issue because, you know, you folded the manual chair like a buggy as such and, you know. Yeah. Um, and then over in Florida, we, we were just amazed, like the, the buses were wheelchair accessible. They had lifts. I mean, we, we got photos. I mean, we were yeah. getting, this was like the, it was like a ride as well, you know. And this was in the late 80s, early 90s? This would have been in the 90s, yeah. yeah you know, and uh, nothing like that back home and uh, everything accessible, everything. 
And um, actually, one, the highlight of the holiday, and it's terrible to think this, but because Stephen had the wheelchair, you didn't have to queue for all these rides. You'd go to the exit and you'd have these queues two and three hours long. And there we are hopping on and off these rides, you know, two and three times. And God love him now. He He hated the focus on him. Yeah. But uh, there was one adv- one advantage of it, you know. But uh, fantastic that it wasn't just getting from A to B, but also the destinations were accessible as well. So you know the places you wanted exactly. to go to would facilitate him. Everything and, was, yeah. it was. They were just leaps and bounds ahead of us. Yeah. From that point of view, you know, and then to go back home, and then realize how bad it is, yeah. you know, back home in the nineties and that, you know, uh, and and of course, like as Stephen got older, he moved out of home and was living yep. on his own with he the did, personal yeah. assistant he or? did he um unfortunately his friend ed ed had independent living and, and Stephen got a taste of that and then unfortunately ed passed away and i think Stephen kind of saw his life flashing before him thinking god i have to go back home now and he had the best of both worlds he'd, he'd be at home and get his home comforts mm. and then he had his escapism down to his friends yeah. independent living and I think he's, he he panicked, and uh, at that stage, I, th- I think he realised what he wanted, and he, he wanted an independent living situation for himself. So yeah, he he moved out. Um, he got a lovely uh, apartment down in the Irish Wheelchair Association, and um, he got some lovely PAs. He was so lucky, you know. They were more than personal assistants to him. They became very close friends. Uh, so again, though, at, at this stage, this was in in the like the noughties mm-hmm. um, and I suppose even though there was um, you know public transport was getting better he still he hated the focus been put on himself so there was a bus stop right outside the Irish Wheelchair Association and I remember him getting on the bus for the first time because I kept saying look the ramps are on the bus now yeah. you know you can do this uh, but it was the beeping he got on and there the bus driver obviously has to press this button and it's beep, mm. beep, Everybody beep. looking out the window. Everybody looking at the boy in the wheelchair. Okay? Yeah. He hated that and he said, I am not doing that again. Yeah. So again, he relied on the family car. So, you know, he'd, he'd ring us up and he'd be like, I need to go here, there and everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously at the drop of a hat, my parents would. And if if I could, I'd be dropping him everywhere. Yeah. Um, couldn't really rely on the trains because... Train stations, you know, the lifts could be broken. Yeah. You had to plan ahead. You had to ring them ahead of time and, mm. and, and let them know. He couldn't do anything on a whim, basically. Mm. Everything had to be planned out. And of course, even you were saying in his friendship groups, etc., like it's very difficult for more than one person to travel exactly. often by public transport because there just isn't the space. There just or isn't the space there at all. I mean, never, like, it wasn't, it never even contemplated going abroad on planes once he was in the electric wheelchair, you know. Um, you hear horror, had a horror story of his friend going away and his electric chair going, getting missing for two days. And what do you do if you've no wheelchair for two days? You know, it's not like a missing case. Yeah. Um, and just like my wedding, you know, he planned, he had to ring ahead for taxis. You know, he couldn't leave when he wanted to leave. He had to give them a time to pick him up. So everything had to be planned well yeah. out in advance. You couldn't do anything on a whim, yeah. basically. And yeah. for, for a big day like that, where you're going from the church to the venue and, you know. there And that's why we did what we did. We stayed in the city centre 
Do you know that way? So that there wasn't much travelling. You, you literally, we were only around the corner. You went yeah. from City Hall to, to the restaurant and the bars and we had to make sure everything was, you know, accessible with lifts and ramps and everything. So, yeah, like a lot of planning, but it's just become second nature as a family. You know, you, you've done this for 30 years, yeah. you know, and, and it's just second nature. You're, you're there for him and he's there for you. Exactly. Yeah. You just know how everything works. And, well, I suppose the Lewis has made a difference in that. I, it's easier for designers of the light rail because it's a new system. So we could start from scratch and we could kind of take um, lessons from other cities. Exactly. Uh, but how did, how did that system, how did the Lewis change life for Stephen? Well, I suppose it was when he got into town, you know, I mean, it's I, it's great that it is extending out, you know. Um, but when we were in town one day and I said, come on, we, we have to go on this, Lewis. You and know. had you started working for Lewis at that I stage? Ha- or, well, or I was in, we were NRA at that stage, so we hadn't merged. So this this was even new to me, yeah. you know. So I said, come on, we have to get on this, Lewis. Well, he couldn't believe he didn't need a ramp. Yeah. He didn't need to ring ahead. He didn't need to plan anything. There was loads of space. He couldn't believe, like, all the space for yeah. numerous wheelchairs on it so this was a great experience and he was like why why has it taken so long yeah so we were on it um and it was it was quiet enough um and we were on it and it was brilliant and then um I think it was a few months later we were in town and we were going somewhere but it was peak times yeah so we were getting on it again and and it was busy and he was very conscious of the size of his wheelchair. He was in a very bulky chair, so mm-hmm. he was always conscious of uh, people around him. He didn't want to go over anyone's toes, but he just couldn't believe how many people literally would just be ploughing on. And he was just a bit nervous, so he yeah. would take his time. And obviously a few people would always stand back, mm. you know. And it was a, a different experience as such. But it, it, look, it was when still... When it's ex- busy. When yeah. it's busy. Um, yeah. But it, the funny thing was, we were, we were on it. And whatever way, it was, it was very busy. There was people right beside us. And this uh, woman fell on his lap in the oh. chair. And oh, God loved the woman. Like, she was mortified. Yeah. But he couldn't stop laughing. He said, well, if, if, if any advantage to this travel, you know, I have women falling a on la- me. <laughs> a lady falling right into his lap. Yeah, I hope she was uh, beautiful. <laughs> oh, well, I don't, I don't think he cared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I suppose it's interesting. Probably most people don't mean to be inconsiderate but just in the crush and in the busyness and we all have headphones on or earphones in and in our own world yeah but yeah yeah and like there's loads of people that are considerate mm. you know but there's just those few I, I as look they could be having a bad day you just never know what's going on in people's lives so yeah. I'd never you know be hired on anybody but it's just when you see I mean I see it today you know all over I even see it on the Lewis you know there's there's people with chairs and they're trying to get on and they're waiting and waiting. And the loose, it just goes. Do you know that way? Yeah. Then they wait for the next one. Now, they're only 10 minutes, I know. But they could be waiting there for the third one before somebody actually... It took someone the last time to physically hold people back and say, let this person on, you know. Because yeah. people in the chair, they don't want to put people out. So they're the last people to actually voice their opinions. Yeah. Really, do you know and that way? And like a perfect example, I was on a bus uh, a few years ago. And um, like that, there was a woman on with her buggy. And the bus stopped and a man in a wheelchair was, was getting on. But the woman with the buggy, all her shopping was underneath. So she couldn't close the buggy up. Yeah. Now, look, she wasn't really killing herself trying to do anything. And the bus driver, I mean, I know they're kind of 
caught in the middle. Mm. But he had to go, like he couldn't let the, the man on. Yeah, you know he would. He was at. He really should have asked the lady to get off and the man to yeah. get on on the chair. But again, the man on the stop was just going, no, go, go, go. He didn't want a fuss to be made. And yeah. So it's just little things like that, yeah, you know. Definitely, uh, I think the buses are struggling with trying to find a solution to that, aren't they? Whether it's an additional space that you have, you know, designated space for both buggies and wheelchair, rather than pitting the two. That's it. Each and, other. and realistically, the spots, the spaces on the bus, you can really only fit one, one. chair. Yeah. Do you know, I know they say, you know, maybe you can get two. You can't, especially if you had someone with a bulky electric wheelchair getting on, you're only going to get one person yeah. on it, you know. And then at peak times when people are standing, there's no way somebody could be getting on and off easily there as well. So, yeah, I don't, I, going forward now, I'm not sure how they're going to get, yeah. get, get with that now. Hopefully frequency of service will help well, as well, that people aren't <laughs> waiting for, you know, that there's a, a, you'll have plenty more um, buses and choice of services and um, that ultimately... If you are stuck, that you won't have to that's wait too it. Long. I mean, look, that's really the only way forward, isn't it? And so, is there anything that you think that planners or designers or managers of public transport systems could do to improve life? Um, I think the main thing really is just to speak to the people that are affected and get their point of view. Um, you know, I mean, these are the people, they need a voice. They're the one using the transport. They're the ones that know the issues yeah. So there's no point in the likes of us sitting down here and talking about what we could do when it does it doesn't affect us. Yeah, you know, we can get up and go wherever we want. Yeah. Um, but I suppose another aspect is you know all all disabilities are different. Yeah. And one disability will affect another disability because, for example, Stephen was constantly given out about the the raised bumps mm-hmm. at um, pedestrian crossings. Obviously, they're for blind people, yeah. but it was really it affected him in his chair. His chair was unbalanced and it'd be really bumpy going over, which affected his back. And, you know, because of the, sometimes he could be in a lot of pain, mm. um, you know, from his muscles and his, you know, bones and that. Um, so going over those bumpy surfaces affected him. Yeah. So he was always giving out about them. And I said, well, Steve, we need these here, you yeah. know, because there's people with other disabilities. That, and he, so, you know, it's it's getting perspectives from all disabilities. All, all yeah. sides, yeah. Do you know, and just, I suppose, everything to link up as well. Yeah. You know, and, um, but yeah, I think the, the people that are affected, the most important thing is for them to have a voice. Yeah. And to hear their stories, you know. And Erica, so obviously there are a lot of barriers when it comes to public transport and improvements, it has to be said. But in other areas of life, you know, what kind of obstacles did Stephen come across, you know, in um, terms of going to restaurants? Yeah, or? I mean, look, the main thing is, you know, wheelchair accessibility and, you know, some restaurants say they are accessible, but when you go up, there's there's a little dip. And fair enough, if you were in a manual wheelchair, you, you, somebody could help you up. If you're in an electric wheelchair, you, you can't get up those little dips, do you know? The, yeah. the weight of the chair, you, you, you just can't. Yeah. So, and then obviously the toilet situation, you know, I mean, you need a lot of space. So it needs to be a properly, uh, you know, accessible, accessible chair, toilet, yeah. you know, for you to turn around. I mean, we've gone into many toilets and you couldn't close the door behind you, do you know? Yeah. And then, um, obviously, you could never go to the beach with Stephen because you can't go into the sand. Yeah. Uh, we went a few times and, obviously, he would have to stay up on the grass area, but he could never go down. Like, when I had, you know, my son, Jake, um, we used to go down the beach a lot and 
you know, we just couldn't go down and enjoy the, the water with him and all that. Yeah. So we really only got to go to the park with, with, with his nephew, do you know? Yeah. Um, and then, like, there was one year, God, it's years ago, we went to this festival. I can't even remember which one it was. And, you know, no wheel, no toilets. Mm. I mean, it's festivals are anyway, bad enough but anyway. Uh, yeah. But probably very... Simple changes could really make, you know, open that whole world up, you know, that and you've, yeah. a little bit of advanced planning maybe yeah. would... Uh, no, in fairness, like, I mean, I know the stadiums are great. Uh, they, they've, you know, all the, the three arena, all of them, you know, they've specially, they've special areas for the wheelchairs and, and like he's gone to, you know, football matches uh, with his dad. And so he's gone to a few of the stadiums and they do have designated areas and that's great. And they have the wheelchair accessible toilets and it's brilliant. Yeah. Um. But I suppose, yeah, just little things. I mean, like at the beach. I mean, I know lately that there's things coming out and they have these uh, boardwalk boardwalks now. Yeah, but it's terrible. Like it's just one area. They just go down and can. What what if ten wheelchairs wanted to go out in the same day yeah. and they're using the same yeah. boardwalk? Like they have to line up behind each other. You know, it's 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 a good idea on paper, but you have to look at these things practically. Yeah, Do you know, like don't just think there's one person in Ireland in a wheelchair. Yeah, Do you know, like there's thousands of people. Yeah, Do you know, and what if a hundred people go to the beach on the same day? And so it's just about thinking outside the box. Yeah, and just don't be so close-minded when it comes to people with disabilities. Like, you might know someone with a disability, but they are out there, and there's more than one. Yeah, you know. So it's just taking that into account. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks so much, Erica, for coming in and talking so candidly and openly. Stephen sounds like a really lovely guy. And, he um, was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was. He yeah. was a gentle giant, as I called him. Yeah. Um, so we miss him dearly. But uh, look, if, if this highlights, you know, issues that can be sorted and help future generations, you know, to be more independent, because that was, that was his main thing you know, independent living. Yeah. And uh, if, if, if one step uh, going towards that, it'll be a great help for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah. So that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed our conversations on disability and design and gained some insight into the role we can all play in ensuring public transport is truly for everyone. Thank you to our host, Sarah O'Donnell, to Trevor Cudden on sound, to the production team, Kathleen Jacobi, Rachel Cahill and Claire Scott. To Sinead Foley from TU Dublin, who designed our fantastic graphics. And to everyone else who helped make this podcast. Please send us your comments and feedback to allaboard at tii.ie. And for more episodes from All Aboard, please go to Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.